page 696. <clears throat> if you think that I have been walking around here freestyling this whole time, well, that part is true. But I have never strayed from this book. I have never told you anything that can't be found in this text. What you are hearing right now is what you can also read on the page. 696 in the English, you're on 821 if you're using the French. The key paragraph here begins, we must keep in mind. Everybody take a second, read this paragraph to yourself. What paragraph was that? Page 696 in this English translation, but page 821 in the French, the paragraph begins, we must keep in mind. Okay, so it may be an 822, but mine says 821. Raise your hand if you need a little more time with this paragraph. Raise your hand if you couldn't find the paragraph. Okay. We must keep in mind that jouissance is prohibited. Now there's something going on here with the French. That's why Bruce has left in the French here so you can see that Lacan is doing something playful. To whoever speaks as such. So, by the fact that you speak, Lacan says jouissance is prohibited. Now, that doesn't mean that you had jouissance and then somebody taught you to speak like a proper lady or gentleman and then you had to get rid of it. That is not how this logic works. Jouissance is not something you had and that you have now lost by learning language. If you've only got ears to hear a little bit, this is what I want you to hear. Jouissance is not something you had and then lost when you entered language. Jouissance is something that can only be had as loss. As lost. It is as lost that jouissance becomes accessible to us. Because the human experience begins after language. And I know you don't like that. I know you're not comfortable with that. But the wager here is that without signifiers, you can't experience stuff. It doesn't mean shit didn't happen to you. I got scars on my body from my pre-linguistic days that back up the narratives I've been told about what happened to me. I've got those scars. But what they fundamentally back up are narratives. Lacan's point is that you can only ever have jouissance as something that has been lost. 
doesn't mean you had it at one point and then you lost it. It means that it is always already missing. To speak, to have language, is to have enjoyment always already removed from the field of possibilities before you. Society is shored up or propped up by language. The law is written down in language. Norms are transmitted. Stereotypes are transmitted mouth to mouth by language. I don't know any baby that hates black people. I don't know any racist babies. And I don't know any kids that walk through the world and see people with different skin tones and think lesser of them. They notice difference, but skin is not yet a difference that makes a difference in the child's life. You can notice all kinds of differences. The question is, what differences make a difference, socially speaking? For something to make a difference in your life, it has to be made into something more than a simple difference. And that is happening through language. The human experience of race, I'm trying to tell you here, is not just socially constructed. It is linguistically determined. It is by way of language, which is why it's so excellent that we're finally talking about institutionalized racism, because the primary place in which all isms are instituted is language. There are so many words and expressions that if you just take a close etymological look at, you'll see how they're wrapped up in the history of violence against women, black and brown bodies, any minoritized figure. The rule of thumb was never just a simple given guideline. The rule of thumb described the maximum width of a stick that you could pull from a tree and beat the fuck out of your wife and children and slaves. In fact, I don't even think this rule applied to slaves. Notice, I'm not using the word fuck here to scandalize you. I wanna remind you that the etymological origin of the word fuck is to hit. There is something inherent and violent about fucking. So the rule of thumb is a good example of this. It's a really common expression that describes things that almost don't even need to be described. It's just a general guideline. But it has this very acute, unconscious history. You see, if the unconscious is structured like a language, as Lacan would say, I'd like to add something more to that. Every language also has its own unconscious. That's why words matter. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can mess you up too. And one of the ways they do it is by having all of this unconscious, usually etymological baggage to them that we are unaware of when we use an expression like rule of thumb. 
as you can see today, I am chomping at the bit to splay us as widely as possible beyond the field of clinical experience, beyond the discipline of this, that, or the other, and into some of the wider reaches that this kind of thinking enables. This is not just about being a better clinician. The people who I know who seriously read this material, they're trying to be better humans. They're trying to be better partners. They're trying to be better parents. They're trying to help their parents be better partners. I know you all are already on this page. You wouldn't be doing the work that you're doing now, aspiring toward this goal that you're aspiring towards now. If you didn't already have a mindset geared towards helping others, helping yourself, living the best life, and I just want to remind you again and again that that's all this stuff amounts to. All Lacan wants to do is to help patients get past fantasy and desire and into a different plane of existence. Not a field of desire, but a field of drive. Not a field of fantasy, but one above it, of jouissance. That's why if you look at the completed graph, what you'll see is desire and fantasy are down here. Above desire is the drive and above fantasy is jouissance. They're at the top of the graph because that's where Lacan hopes that through the careful work of psychoanalysis, you will be able to get the analyzand. You'll be able to help get them up to that level. And we would be remiss at this point if I didn't also point out to you that at that top level, there's a circuit that can be run. Once you get up there, if you play your cards right, you can stay up there. A life worth living is one where you find a way to work the circuit from jouissance to castration, and then back again to jouissance to castration back again, jouissance and castration. You see how the arrows work? They actually allow for a repeat performance. You can pass from a signifier of the lack and the other out to the drive and then loop back around to a signifier of the lack and the other and then go back to the drive. But please also note, you can just as easily go from a signifier of the lack and the other to the drive and then loop around and miss the signifier again and wind up back down in fantasy and keep going even further down to meaning. That visually, please, I'm trying to follow. Do you mind holding it up? Yeah. And pointing to where you're at. So I want to make sure I could, I'm following you, if you don't yeah. mind. Here, let's try some These are crayons. This is my daughter's art supplies. So what you can have here going along the top, is that even visible? Yes. There's your J for jouissance. Here's your C for castration. Here we'll put drive, just because it's easier. The walls are a little lumpy, so the writing's gonna be a little off. 
here you have a signifier of the bar nether. And you've got this arrow that goes retroactively, the same arrow we've been working on. What I'm trying to suggest is that there's a way for you to stay up here and continue to work around and around this area between castration and jouissance. You can just stay up here, but you could just as easily make your way all the way up here and then miss and keep going and wind up down here back in fantasy. And you could just as easily keep going and wind up down here in meaning according to a big other that is not barred, but instead whole. And that's usually the temptation. It is challenging to be in a world without meaning, without answers, when the very thing that contains society seems to be incomplete. I'm sorry, but the state does not make sense. It does not cohere. I'm sorry, but religion does not make sense. It does not cohere. There is no apparatus, social or otherwise, that you can rely on to give you all the answers. That is a very uncomfortable feeling to have day in and day out. That's why it's so damn tempting to pass through the signifier of the lack and the other, to get back to something where the other is whole, the fantasy that they have all the answers, just like mommy or daddy bringing us that blanket or that food. But rest assured, in order to get there, you must enter the world of fantasy again, because this, as an adult, is a fantasy. For little kids, a little bit of omnipotence directed at the primary caregiver, the feeling that your parent or your primary caregiver has their shit together, that's kind of healthy, I would think. I would think it might be a pretty good thing to feel like your parent has some answers, to feel like they don't have an, that they have an endless supply of food in the refrigerator. Anybody that grew up in a house that oftentimes had a bare refrigerator, you know how much that sucks. I grew up broke. It was awful. We were hungry. That fridge was empty. I would have much rather have had food in that fridge. But the fantasy as an adult that somehow the fridge is always full or that it needs to be full in order for you to feel fed is a problem because it shirks the very hard work of dealing with the fact that nothing is full. Nothing is complete. But here's the thing, when nothing is complete and you can give up on the narrative and the fantasy that it should be, then you can just sit down and have a cup of coffee and be like, man, this world is super fucked up, but this coffee tastes pretty good. You hear that? That's jouissance. That doesn't mean I just had an orgasm. That's not what we're talking about. It's the type of enjoyment that is as simple as, ah. 
but that enjoyment only comes up here in recognition, in spite of, in light of the fact that the container that is supposed to hold you and your society together leaks. That's the issue with the symbolic. It's not just the container for everything. It's a leaky vessel. It has a crack in it. It cannot hold everything forever. Hey, Sam. Yeah, go ahead. So I've been thinking about this for a while. I'm not sure exactly how to ask it. But in the case of working with the psychotic, where, and Lacan says, that the best stance is to assume the the um, the lacking big other, right? Um, but unlike the hysteric and, and pervert who have have that skin of of uh, of of dealing with prohibition, I'm wondering how to work with the psychotic in that way when when just kind of playing that that lacking big other or or that might even be a form of prohibition in the in the experience of the psychotic, which can be dangerous. And I don't know if, if that's making sense, if you can speak to that a little bit. It is. And we have to just premise this by saying what I said yesterday too, that there are some Lacanians who do not believe that you can treat psychotics using this method. They don't actually think that you can do it. I don't, I also have heard from people though that you can. And I tend to lean more toward the can part, not because I'm that kind of doctor, but because I know that Lacan built all this atop his experience of working with psychotic persons. I also know that very early in his career, seminar three, I just taught it in fact, seminar three is called the psychoses. It is fundamentally about Lacanian technique being used to account for psychotic clinical structures. So if you just look at what Lacan has produced and the amount of stuff that he has said about psychosis <clears throat> and his work history in asylums, it's very clear that he believed that Lacanian work could apply to psychotics. So I tend to lean more in that direction, but that's only based on a reading of the literature which oddly enough is the one thing that Lacanians don't ever do, right? If you haven't noticed this yet, but most Lacanians prefer to speak about Zizek or somebody else, somebody who does the hard work of reading Lacan for them. Anytime you hear somebody use the word Zizek and Lacan in the other sentence, in the same sentence, just turn and walk in the other direction. Doesn't mean Zizak is a bad reader of Lacan. It just means that the person you're speaking with is probably gonna be relying more on Zizak, who is more of a Hegelian than a Lacanian, if you wanna get technical, more of a Marxist than a psychoanalyst. They're gonna be relying on Zizak, which is not the same as reading Lacan. I'm not saying you can't trust these people because they're oftentimes smart too. It just means that Zizek and Lacan probably shouldn't be mentioned in the same sentence if you're trying to be serious about using Lacan. So with regards to Santi's question here about 
psycho psychosis and the like. <clears throat> I think it's possible. The stance that the analyst would take towards the psychotic. If you look at Lacan's work from seminar three up through seminar 23, so over the span of two decades, in 23, you see him doing a lot of work that he probably should have done in seminar three, but wasn't able to do. Seminar 23 is called the synthome, S-I-N-T-H-O-M-E. And he's of course playing on different French puns, synth as in creation, home as in man, ohm, synthome, the created person, but what he figures out there in reading the works of James Joyce is that one of the ways that the psychotic subject is able to stave off psychoses is by creating these little extra ties that fill in the cracks of their symbolic, of their relationship to language. And those little fillers are called synthomes. So he says, for instance, in seminar three, he's working very closely with this German judge, Schreber, who writes in these memoirs about all the shit, it basically writes about him losing his own mind. And it's a very classic text when understanding clinical structure of psychoses, according to Lacan, because it can actually show you how the psychotic experiences delusions, their relationship to big imaginary others, which is there because they don't have a relationship to a big symbolic other. That's the basic sticking point, is that the neurotic has a relationship to a container that gives their life structure and meaning. That container is known as the symbolic. Because the psychotic has a broken relationship to language, they also have a broken relationship with the symbolic. And yet they still, like all human subjects, according to Lacan, long to feel held, contained, structured. But without the symbolic to do that work for them, where is the psychotic to find this containing structure? Lacan's answer, they turn to the imaginary. And instead of having a big symbolic other known as the law or society or language, they now have a big imaginary other known as aliens, Barack Obama, the NSA, Asian people, them. What the psychotic does is they create a larger than life other that then gives their life the structure and direction that they lack because they don't have a relationship to the symbolic. So now, because aliens are trying to read my thoughts, I have direction in life. I now know the things that have to be done to make my life work. I have to wrap my head in tinfoil because otherwise the aliens can read my thoughts. This is all straight Lacan stuff too. Again, I can show you the passages if we have more time. I'm not just making this up. This is me walking you through texts that are actually out there that you can read. So holler at me afterwards and I'm happy to send you some passages. But what's happening here at the level of psychosis 
is that an imaginary other has to be created to supplement for the lack of a symbolic other. And that's partly why these others are so huge. Not surprisingly, you'll often find psychotics who believe that they're not just trying to have their mind read by aliens. God is trying to have sex with me. I am God's lover. This was the case with Schreber. Schreber thought that he was like God's wife. God was married to him. God was penetrating him. Notice God wasn't gay, and Schreber was like, I have a penis. God has a penis. We're going to do gay stuff. It wasn't like that. Schreber feminized himself in order to become something through which the imaginary other passes. And that's part of the danger. That's part of the struggle with the psychotic is that they feel that their skin is porous. The psychotic, according to Lacan, is somebody who feels like they're constantly being entered, penetrated by big imaginary others. God shows up and fucks Schreber in the night. He feels like he is God's bitch, if you allow me to be a little crass with this. And you should read the Schreber memoirs. These things are wild. This is true and in keeping with the spirit of the text. But this is how Schreber conceives of himself. Now, interestingly enough, here's the great difference between the psychotic and the neurotic, according to Lacan. According to Lacan, language for the neurotic person is something that the neurotic learns to inhabit. The neurotic subject enters the symbolic, finds their place within all the social rules and regulations, derives an identity and lives a life more or less successfully. The opposite is true for the psychotic. The psychotic does not have a container. They are not the thing contained. And as a result, the opposite is true. If the neurotic inhabits language, language inhabits the psychotic. That's a very important thing that Lacan says. This is partly why psychotics are always discernible according to Lacan at the level of linguistic disturbance. They speak in voices that are different from their own. They seem to be having conversations with people that aren't there. They can be heard yelling at themselves from other subject positions. Lacan is like, the reason why that is is because their relationship to language isn't just jacked up. It's jacked up in a very particular way. Because they do not have an experience of being contained by the symbolic, like the rest of us neurotics do, they now feel vulnerable. Different languages, alien tongues are constantly passing through the psychotic. And they speak in voices and they hear voices. And this is where things get interesting. And Santi, I hope this starts to answer your question. The psychotic knows that, he, this is all according to Lacan, by the way. Do I need to keep saying that or do you get it now? This is just Lacan. The psychotic, according to Lacan, knows that you can't hear the voices in their head. 
They know that you can't hear those voices, which is proof to them that they are the chosen one. You'll notice, it doesn't mean that those voices don't exist. It means that because you can't hear them, but they can, it's proof that they are indeed the ones that aliens want to read. They are indeed the only one that Barack Obama wants to spy on. They are indeed God's only wife. The reason why God only speaks to me is because he doesn't love you the same way. I'm the special one. I'm the selected one. Or what if that's their own psychotic way of creating the container, the temenos that they don't have because they know they don't have it in a way that we do, we do. It is. That is precisely right, Palomi. That is exactly what, at least according to Lacan. Lacan says that this is part and parcel of the invention of a big other. The delusional hallucinatory invention of a big other is coupled with the fact that that huge imaginary other, Colonel Sanders, the Queen of England, so forth, has chosen them of all people to be the select, special, chosen, magical individual. I bought a piece of work from a guy the other day on the street. He's like my neighborhood artist. And it's an amazing piece. It's, a, it's like an incredible piece of art. I just could, I was like, I mean, I feel weird doing this kind of shit, but I was like, bro, I love this. You're cool. I'm cool. Like, can I just buy this? He needs money. I love art. Okay, It's just cool. too much. It was too much. It doesn't take any break. It. He sold it. And I said, wow, you're amazing. And here's what he said to me. He said, I'm not amazing. It's all God's will. I don't paint this. This is all from God. I'm just the medium. All I am is the medium. I was like, shit, I heard that before. I read that in the Bible. Okay, Jesus. I don't think Jesus was psychotic. Jesus was actually, according to Lacan, Seminar 10, he was a pervert. Jesus was a masochist, which makes God a sadist. Seminar 10. There will be no breaks. You can take a break if you need one. Here, what we're trying to get at is psychoanalysis relative to psychosis. It is an extremely important point because according to Lacan, if you have a psychotic who walks through your door, and I don't mean they show up as a psychotic, like many psychotics, the psychotic that walks through your door, it might just be the person who is not suffering a break, but instead has their shit pretty well contained, maybe even medicated under the sheets. A lot of psychotics know, the sociopath, for instance, knows that when someone's crying, you're supposed to express sympathy. They can do that. Dexter can shed a tear even with you, but he doesn't feel that shit in his bones the way a neurotic might. The psychotic shows up and presents to you as though they're neurotic. If you misdiagnose their clinical structure as neurosis and you start treating them as though they're a neurotic patient, you can actually trigger, according to Lacan, the psychotic break that allows their underlying clinical structure of psychosis to blow up. So there's a great deal of emphasis in clinical Lacanian work on getting your diagnostics right. If, you, if someone's a pervert, you need to do all that you can to determine that. 
If someone is psychotic, you need to be all that you can do to make sure that you get at that because a misdiagnosis can result in really bad results. I don't have any evidence of that. All I know is hearing from Lacanians and Lacan himself that it's a BFD. So you could have somebody that is psychotic deep down according to Lacan, but that doesn't present. So then the question becomes, how do you detect if somebody has a psychotic clinical structure? According to Lacan, this is detected at the level of, wait for it, language disturbances. It's at the level of speech. There will be weird shit that a psychotic person does with language that demonstrates to you, the analyst, that they are indeed psychotic, which brings us back to the synthome and to Santi's question. What James Joyce did with the English language was effectively break it apart and reinvent the thing. It is his own English. It is an absolute deconstruction of the English language. If you've ever peeped into Finnegan's Wake, you know what I'm talking about. He has absolutely deconstructed, taken apart and then put back together in a totally new way, the entire English language. That for Lacan is the synthome. It is a radically new and unique reconstruction of the symbolic that allows the psychotic person now to not have an imaginary other that is constantly raping them in the night, but instead a new symbolic that effectively sutures and patches over the crack in their original relationship to the original symbolic. Joyce, in other words, if he had not sublimated his psychosis at the level of art, at the level of poetry, he would have been psychotic. So from seminar three to seminar 23, you see Lacan doing some pretty interesting stuff with psychosis. And in the end, what he is suggesting on my reading of seminar 23, is that the way that you could treat a psychotic person is by helping them with their synthome, helping them develop a new symbolic, something other than the big imaginary other, usually big imaginary others that have screwed up their life so intensely. Seminar 23 suggests that that is the answer. Now, this is pretty new for me. I just lectured on 23, actually to some folks in your program, they're doing their dissertations right now. And so I thought what better time to introduce them to seminar 23 of Lacan. So you can ask around and compare notes with some of them. They're all out of coursework now and um, finishing their big projects, but it's new to me. So I'm still bouncing it off my clinical homies just to see how the synthome would work, especially those that work in institutions. But my understanding after a preliminary reading of 23 Santi is that you wouldn't exactly show up as the barred other for the psychotic. You would want to help them discover an other that is not barred. So in other words, you would wanna start them off at the first level of the graph you would actually be well served to help them develop this area. 
I read Lacan as saying that you could start doing good work with a psychotic here at the level of, of demand. Not unlike the work that you would do with a child as you introduce them to language, because that is effectively what you are doing for the psychotic, is you're giving them a second introduction to the very structure whose initial introduction they rejected when it occurred. You're trying to reintroduce them, reintegrate them into the symbolic. So it's not surprising that the very same need to demand big other meaning according to the big other circuit could be applicable here. Now, I want you all to take this with a huge grain of salt. If you're not already, just remember, this is me reading Lacan and presenting it to you as best I can. If you were to ask me what it is that I mean by this return to Lacan, I would say the exact same thing that Lacan said about his return to Freud. The meaning of this return to Lacan that I am performing for you is a return to the meaning of Lacan that has more often than not been denied you every single time you've heard anybody try to say anything about Lacan. So bear that in mind. He fancied himself simply a translator of Freud and that's all I'm doing here is trying to keep you as close to this text as possible. Because remember, I'm a dumbass. I don't know anything about clinical work. I don't know anything about that. I'm a professor. Don't forget, don't forget all that. I'm as ignorant as can be when it comes to the type of work we're talking about, which is precisely why I am the best instructor for this material. It may even be something worth imitating for you. The best father is a dead father and the best analyst is a dumbass. Hold that in mind, because that's how Lacan treated it as well. So where does this put us? We've covered lots of ground, all of which has been completely live and utterly responsive to your questions. I was just, when you were with the coffee cup thing with the, like staying in the top of the graph, it also occurred to me, and I don't know if this fits, that like if we can comfortably stay up there and just accept like, okay, everything's meaningless. So this is a great cup of coffee, but then the risk of psychosis or sociopathy via psychosis of taking the nihilist move rather than the absurdist move of like, okay, nothing matters. And so this is intolerable or every perverted thing I think is permitted, you know, that, that yeah. kind of move and getting stuck there in that way versus stuck there in a, in a whole way. That's such an important question because if you read the signifier of the lack in the other, this big S with the barred A. If you read that from a nihilistic point of view, you then have a hedonistic opportunity to say, well, nothing matters, so I can do whatever the hell I want. Or nothing matters, so what's the point? Off with my head. So you can go either of these directions. And I don't know. I don't know what would keep you from going one direction or the other, except that the way that Lacan has it set up in the graph, what you can see is that when it comes to the drive, this entity right here, 
I want you to notice, drive is connected to jouissance. It's connected to this entity, but drive itself is on the side of castration. It's on the side of castration. So my temptation to answer this is to say that when you realize that the container is not complete, that the big other can't fully do its job, it doesn't mean an end to things. It means you now have to turn to yourself for answers to the question of what kind of life is worth living. But remember, just because the big other doesn't have all the answers, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have a lot of answers, which is why we're out here in the field of castration when it comes to the drive. Now, we haven't talked much about the drive. I told you yesterday I thought it was the most difficult concept in this whole thing. And all I've given you so far with the drive has been a cup of coffee. That's it. That's all I've given you so far with the drive. What I would like to now suggest to answer this question is that when you get to the top here and you see a signifier of the lack in the other, and you realize that what's missing is the experience of enjoyment that society has prohibited from square one, the answer is not a complete nihilistic turn towards hedonism or Epicureanism, and certainly not a nihilistic turn towards suicidality or death, even though sometimes that is the most ethical thing you can do. Instead, it is a turn towards the drive. The drive is a way for you to access jouissance without breaking every single rule in the symbolic. So the drive is not, I enjoy murdering people. And so I'm gonna sneak out in the light in the night like Nero in the first century of the common era and just stab Roman citizens and then go back and sleep like a baby. We don't know if that happened, but Tacitus tells us that it did. That's not the drive. That type of murderous sociopathy is not what the drive is about. The drive is about satisfying desire at the level of jouissance. So it's like desire plus, it's beyond desire. It's about experiencing jouissance in a world where nevertheless castration, prohibition, remember the word here is prohibition, still exists. Now, I can just tell you a little bit about how Lacan says this works. He says that there are four dominant drives that show ways that human beings, after being introduced into language and suffering the prohibition of jouissance, can have non-maladaptive access to this jouissance nevertheless. What he's saying is that there are ways to have jouissance within the symbolic within the field of castration and prohibition. In other words, you don't have to step completely outside society and become a murderous sociopathic being. That's not what he's talking about. The four drives that he discusses are all linked to erogenous zones on the human body. So this also gets at Chandler's question about how the signifier gets attached to the human form. And he says all four of these drives are attached to bodily orifices that all kind of have the, the same rim-like structure. 
So one drive that you've heard about is the oral drive. An oral driven person is somebody who gets off on doing things with their mouths. Obviously the erogenous zone that would be attached to the oral drive would be the lips. An opening in the body that has a rim-like structure, here the mouth, the lips. That is the erogenous zone where the oral drive takes root. So <clears throat> this is usually somebody who enjoys putting things in their mouth, having themselves in other people's mouths, and putting themselves in their own mouths. So each drive is going to have an active, a passive, and a reflexive structure. Actively, if I have an oral drive, I enjoy putting things into my mouth. So this could be, I enjoy eating. This could be, I enjoy smoking. This could be those two great things that go hand in hand, cigarettes and drink. Both of your hands occupied and putting things in there. That's the active, I enjoy putting things in my mouth. That's the oral drive. Passive, you enjoy being eaten by others. Now you can think about that sexually for sure, but there are lots of other ways to think about how someone might get off on being in another's mouth. What if you are on the tip of everybody's tongue? What if everybody at Pacifica is talking about you right now? Wouldn't that satisfy your passive oral drive because now you're in everyone else's mouth? It could. It could be as abstract and symbolic as that. And then the reflexive voice, you enjoy eating yourself. This could be somebody who can't help but bite their nails. I mean, auto cannibalism is a real thing. You can go down to Mexico and have your foot amputated, bring it back in a bag and have foot tacos with your homies by the end of the week. That can actually happen. Autosarcophagy is a real thing. You know it. It happens naturally too. The skin from the inside of your mouth is oftentimes breaking off and you swallow that stuff. Do you know how many of your own pubic hairs are in your stomach right now? Lots. We are constantly ingesting our own hair. It's everywhere. It's inside us. So it's not just about the nervous biting of nails. It's kind of a natural phenomenon too for us to eat ourselves. So you have jouissance at the level of orality. You have an active, a passive, and a reflexive voice. And these are sites at which you can access jouissance within society. In other words, without having somebody call the cops on you. Hence, the coffee cup. I wanted to start with this drive because it is well illustrated. So, uh, I just, I interrupted your jouissance there. Um, it's okay, I get off on that too. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm tempted to maybe catapult another like a third term at the top of the graph i'm curious why lacan didn't do that why isn't love at the top of the graph so i mean you were talking about how you know the teleological endpoint of analysis is between jouissance and castration basically this kind of you know going back between them but but where 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 is love at the top of the graph i, I just find that to be so bizarre that that's not included here 
Yeah, I don't think that, I think this is an area of his work that has needed more development. And that's why you have a book like the one Bruce just wrote called Lacan on Love. Because Lacan never really got around to working it. In Lacan's seminar on the symposium, you see him, I believe it's in the seminar on transference, you see him getting into the discussion of love and you see a lot of this stuff popping, but he never really pursues it. And it is not because he did not experience love. That's not why. I'm not saying he was an awesome dad or an exceptional partner or a great friend. In fact, his most significant partner was one that he stole from his best friend, ruining the life of his daughter, you might even say. But the biographical stuff aside, I don't know why it's not there, Cody. I don't know why, except to say that what Lacan is doing at this stage has more to do with understanding the human subject individually than it does with putting them into relationship with others. What Lacan is here writing about in this essay is not the subversion of love or intersubjectivity, it's about the subversion of the subject. He really wants to talk about how each of us as individuals are shaped, what we're comprised of, and what we're capable of. And I would say that you're right to think if you were going to add another level here, maybe even to keep the graph going, an arrow popping up from drive, going above the whole thing and into something like love. So instead of having the D of desire, in other words, you may have something like this. Here's desire up to the drive. And then instead of taking this arrow back towards the signifier of the lack and the other and jouissance, you might have something even further up that would be a new addition to the graph where love would come in. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that could work. What I would suggest is that one of the fundamental math themes that would be up there that you can see me working out in my lectures on love in Lacan would be a math theme that looks something like this. You as a split subject living your life in relationship to what the other is missing, in relationship to that lack, something like that. You're right, that is a catapult. It puts us in some different terrain. But I would venture that if you were to go that far and develop love, above it, you might have this instead of drive. So it might look something like this. You have desire leading up to drive, leading up to love. Above that, you might have something like this desire to drive, to love, and something like this. <laughs>